0: Good morning. morning. Happy Sunday to all of you, and I'm very happy to be worshiping with you this morning. We've reached the end of the book of Philippians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, as we've been saying the last few months. Do you you remember uh, what prompted the Apostle Paul to write this letter? Why was this letter written in the first place? What was the occasion? If you remember correctly, there was a gift sent the church at Philippi sent a gift to the Apostle Paul. It was the financial part of the gift. They were doing it to financially support him, but they didn't just send money. They sent Epaphroditus, one of their best men, a person that Paul especially loved. The gift was financial, but it was also personal. The gift was one of encouragement and support and love. So I thought it would be fun to start with um, thinking, think back to a particularly wonderful gift that you have received. What's the best gift you've ever received? What was the most memorable, the most surprising, the one that made you the most grateful? Think think about it in your head. Or maybe you're like me, and actually, um, you struggle to remember specific gifts. If you ask me what I got for my last birthday or for for like last Christmas, I would actually struggle to tell you. I don't tend to remember specific gifts. Even when I can recall a specific gift, I can't. I couldn't tell you exactly when I got it. So I remember one year that my my parents got me this really wonderful black hybrid bicycle for Christmas. I remember that it was for Christmas, so that's a start. It was strong and it was fast and it was reliable and it looked awesome and it was great. I loved the bike, I rode it all over the place for years afterward, but here's the thing, I couldn't tell you which Christmas it was. I could narrow it down and say I was a teenager, but that doesn't, that doesn't narrow it down very well. I think it was probably my early teens, but to be honest, I don't know. So instead of individual gifts, what I tend to remember, what I do remember, is patterns of giving. I might not be able to, to tell you what I got for my last birthday, so sorry if you got me something for my last birthday. But what I do remember, what always stands out to me is long-term patterns of thoughtful, loving, gift-giving. I, wouldn't, I might not be able to tell you much about each individual gift, but I can definitely tell you about the people who gave them. That's what really tends to stand out to me. Their consistency, their care, their investment in me as a person, their love, that's what I tend to remember. And I bet some of you are like that. I bet some of you feel the same way about certain people in your life who have given you gifts. Not just uh, one great, awesome gift at one time, but kind of a long-term pattern of gift-giving. Here in our passage this morning, we see that this is pretty much how the Apostle Paul feels about the church at Philippi. It wasn't that they just sent him this one gift, and it was so awesome, and so he wrote them a letter, and it became a part of the Bible. This is a part of a bigger story. This is a part of a longer-term relationship between the Apostle Paul and the church At Philippi, So listen to what he wrote to them. It's in your bulletins. You can open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 if you're interested in in reading along. Beginning at verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet. Every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, if you asked a New Testament scholar for what that's worth, what is the happiest book in the New Testament, they would probably pick the book of Philippians. It's definitely considered Paul's most joyful letter. The question is, we've talked about this over the previous weeks, uh, why was he so joyful? After all, he was imprisoned. He had been maltreated. What he was experiencing was definitely different than how we plan out our lives. I'm afraid that if my life was going like his, I wouldn't be very joyful about it, honestly. I would probably be questioning God and complaining to him. But here's the Apostle Paul, and he's feeling joyful. Why? Well, throughout the whole book of Philippians... The whole book, two things shine off the pages of the letter. These two things were clearly on the Apostle Paul's mind while he was writing, and they're the two things that made him joyful. The first one is, the letter to the Philippians is just full of the gospel. From beginning to end, it's like he shoved more and more and more good news into it. Throughout the book, the Apostle is almost overwhelmed by the love of Jesus and the power of God to work out our salvation despite our circumstances. Here's just a sampling of some of the one-liners from the book. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In every way, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. To live as Christ to die is gain. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. The Lord is at hand. And in last week's sermon, you heard Brad talk about, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's just a sampling of some of this. That's, that's maybe half of the things I could have just read to you in short order. It's a very short book. You can read the whole thing in 10 or 15 minutes. And it's just chock full of the glory of the gospel. Readers can tell that the Apostle Paul's mind is overflowing with the overwhelming glory of Jesus when he writes. He knows what Jesus has done for him, and he knows that Jesus is with him. And that's one of the two things that gives him joy. But in today's passage, we see the second reason why the Apostle Paul was so joyful. He felt a special connection to this Philippian church. A connection that was really due to the long-term, loving relationship that they had enjoyed. He begins this letter, you heard Jim read from this earlier. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so from the beginning all the way through, the Philippian church had constantly encouraged and supported the Apostle Paul. Look at uh, verse 14, and, 14, 15, and 16 again in our passage. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They shared in his troubles from the beginning and all along the way. And they showed great concern for his physical needs. In verse 15, he surprisingly calls them partners in his ministry. Not assistants, not backup second teamers, not financiers, just the source of the funding that enabled him to go and do what he did. He says they're partners. The implication of partners, if you have a partner in a business, it's not that, you know, if they're partner partners, it's not that one is the, you know, I'm the real partner and you're the, jun- you know, there's junior partners and there's senior, par- but I mean, if you're partner partners, then you're equal. So the implication is That they each play an equally important role Without Paul The the gospel doesn't go out to the nations And likewise Without the church at Philippi The gospel doesn't go out to the nations They were more important To this whole project Than maybe even they themselves understood That's That's what he seems to be saying So the two reasons That he's joyful in this letter Are the gospel And the people of God the people of God but that's the funny thing about the the book of Philippians the apostle Paul doesn't draw a firm line between the two he seems to be if you read the book just straight through you'll see he seems to be talking about both always at the same time he's talking about you and the gospel to the Philippians you and the gospel and what you've done and what Christ has done and it's all sort of woven together Maybe that's because they just both happened to be on his mind at the same time, the glory of Jesus and the goodness of the church. And so that's what came out in his, as he wrote, maybe the two of them at once. Maybe. But if you read through this letter from beginning to end, I think that you, you'll begin to notice that maybe these two things, the glory of, of Jesus and the goodness of the church, are maybe more connected than we tend to think they are. So kids... Kids usually have some kind of a special doll or stuffed animal that's special to them, right? You kids have one of those? What is your special doll or stuffed animal? I've gotten to know some of the special animals here in the church. <laughs> animals like Tiggy and Dora and Misty Cat and Henri and Cherry and Slush and Pinkie Pie. These are all, these are all people that I've met uh, there are other ones that I haven't met maybe and if, if I haven't met yours yet I would love to you can introduce me to your special animal, and that gets, goes for adults as well as kids if you have one <laughs> but kids um, I have a question for you how would you feel kids if somebody said to you I like you very much um, I like you very much but I don't like your favorite special friend what if what if what if they, what if somebody said that to you would you be happy about that No. Now, that's not true of me. I want you to know. I like them all. But what if someone said, I would love to spend time with you, but only if you don't bring your special friend. I will only spend time with you if you leave your special friend at home. How how would you feel about that? Would that make you happy? Of course not. Of course not. Or the grown-ups in the room. What if somebody told you, What if I told you, I really like being around you, and as a matter of fact, the more I could be around you, the happier I would be. The thing is, I just can't stand your spouse. I just can't stand being around your spouse. I mean, it's just annoying all the time. Or your kids. You know, I love you. I mean, I just love, you know, the time that we get to be together is awesome. But honestly, I hate your kids. I mean, if somebody said that to you, um, how would you feel about that? I mean, that's just rude, isn't it? That's just, that's just awful. It's a horrible thing to say. It's offensive. You can't say, this is, the, this is kind of the overarching principle, you can't say, I love you, and I hate the things that are important to you. You can't separate those, uh, the two. There are some things that are just so connected, so bound together that they cannot be torn apart. And we see that every time we witness a death, every time we go to a funeral. We know, we see the family. What does the family grieve over at a funeral? the separation, being torn apart. We see that in divorce. Why is divorce so awful? Because two people that were bound together are torn apart. We see that when the child loses a stuffed animal, a special stuffed animal, like my son did last summer. Some things just aren't meant to be separated. And when they are, it only happens with tears. It only happens with tears. And when I read through... Philippians. it seems to me that the Apostle Paul felt that same way about the glory of Jesus and the goodness of the church. The two of them have to go together. They're not two separate things. It's not that Jesus is with me in my imprisonment, says the Apostle Paul. And also, the church at Philippi was with me through their messengers and gifts. Instead, he unites those things. What he's he's actually saying is, Jesus was with me in my imprisonment through the gifts and love and encouragement of the Philippian church. They played a role in that. The two are one in Paul's story. The love of Christ was poured out on him in a powerful, almost overwhelming way by means of the constant, long-term, generous, loving, joyful support of the Philippian church. Not only, it's not, that's not the only place that he experienced the love of Christ, of course. But it was one of the most important ways that he experienced the love of Christ. It really seems to me to be what underlies the entire letter. As you read through the book of Philippians, you'll just see those two things knotted up on each other. And it explains why the apostle would spend so much time in the Philippians. In the, when whenever the apostle Paul in this letter is not reveling in the glory of God or the goodness of the church, the only other things he talks about are cautions. Warnings. He tells the Philippians about their need for unity, the dangers of complaining and anxiety, how to settle disputes, talks about prayer, and all kinds of other really practical things. As we've read through the letter, you've seen those over the course of the summer. I think the Apostle Paul, having experienced the love of Jesus through the Philippian church, he doesn't want to see anything undermine or cut off or destroy that encouraging relationship that he has with them and so that's why he gives them the cautions be unified I don't want to see this the the glory of Christ torn down by the loss of the goodness of the church we see it actually this is one of the best places to see it in, in the whole book is right here at the very end Look at verses 21 through 23. There are these simple verses that are so easy to read past. But look at what they say. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In these simple greetings, the Apostle Paul is demonstrating how powerful the relationships in the Philippian church were. Think of who is represented in these verses. Think of who is represented by the word saints. Remember what kinds of people he's writing to. There were, included in that one category, single category of saints, there were former Jewish Pharisees who resisted the Roman occupation of Judea. And sitting next to them on Sunday morning were former Roman soldiers, some of whom probably played a role in that occupation of Judea. And they're they're sitting next to each other. You have people born inside the the empire and those who had come from the outside nations, the barbarians who came from outside. Paul mentions the barbarians in his letters and says the gospel is for the barbarians too. People from the ruling classes and those who were impoverished, the educated, the literate, slaves and slave owners were in this church the women of a patriarchal society right alongside its privileged men. Even, it says right here, here in these verses, even people from Caesar's own household, Caesar's own household, are joining together in the, in the community of the saints. We, maybe these were servants in Caesar's household, or maybe they were some of the honored people from the royal court. We don't really know. But think about how improbable these relationships were. In their society, these people would never even greet each other on the street. They would never even say the word hello to someone from a different group than themselves. If you were upper class or, you know, just think of all the various categories we just named. They wouldn't greet each other because they're from different parts of society now here they all are in the same place not just greeting each other but spending time together not just spending time together but investing in something together not just investing in something together but doing it all unified under one name the name of Christ Christian saints one name for all those people They use their families, in their culture, they use their families, their positions, their vocations to identify themselves. This was where they got their identity. I'm from this prestigious family. I'm an important official. I'm a writer. I'm an educated person. I'm an important person. These were all categories they used to prove their own value. Or, if you didn't have any of those things, you identified yourself this way. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm not worth anything because I don't do anything important. That's how they define themselves. That's how they got their identity in their culture. And honestly, I think we do the same thing today. We use family. We use position. We use vocation or lack thereof to identify ourselves and say, I am this. But Jesus changes all that. Here, they're greeting each other in the name of Christ Jesus and describing a bond that is so powerful that it transmits the glory and love of Jesus between them across different cities, across different social strata, different people, different places, different circumstances, and yet they're united under the name of Jesus. Right there in those last three verses. They are Christians first, and everything else comes afterward. That's surprising. It's one of the most surprising parts of the book. Look again at verse 18. Especially there at the end of the verse. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul, right here, he borrows the language of the Old Testament sacrifices to describe the gifts that the Philippian church had sent to him. He uses sacrificial language more frequently than we would expect in this book of Philippians. He does it several times in the book. short book, but several times he makes allusions to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And each time he's using the sacrifice to in some way describe their relationship with each other, which is really weird. Very unexpected. How interesting. In the Old Testament era, the sacrifices were the main way that God's people worshipped him. Sacrifices had a very strong upward, God-oriented focus. Old Testament people would say, we do this, this whole sacrifice thing, to worship him. That's the primary reason. By using the language of Old Testament sacrifices to describe their relationship, the apostle is reminding his reader that the things that they did for each other whether it was sending a gift or writing a letter or however else they helped and cared for and provided for each other, all of these things are ultimately what? They're ultimately an act of worship. They're they're ultimately not just service to each other, service for each other. They're ultimately service for God, service of God. These offerings, these uh, these. These gifts were a fragrant offering, is the phrase he uses, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And according to verse 20, look at verse 20, their result was supposed to be, the result of all this that they're doing is supposed to be glory for our God and Father forever and ever. So the purpose of all of this was to act in such a way that glorifies God. But here's another thing, though. The Old Testament sacrifices... And Paul's relationship with the Philippians also tell us something else about worship. Worship brings us closer to God. It unites us to God. But it also brings us together. And it unites us together like really nothing else can. Two Christians, two Christians sitting in this room, maybe even two Christians sitting next to each other right now in this room, they may have absolutely nothing else in common. But on Sunday morning, they can come and sit next to each other and praise God with one heart one mind and one voice now I I would just challenge you I guess where else can you find that kind of unity one heart one mind one voice that sounds kind of like democratic language right everyone is equal we all get a vote it's like the language of democracy in some sense but democracy doesn't produce this kind of unity democracy fragments us worship is what unites us together this morning And it's what unites us together with other Christians at other times and in other places. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul wrote that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that same love that binds us to Jesus also binds us together. If none of these things can separate us from Him, then space and time and whatever else can't separate us from our brothers and sisters around the world. We are one faith, one baptism, under one Lord for all eternity. One worship binds us to together in ways that, that nothing else can. I am thankful, I truly am thankful that God has blessed our church with unity in the years that I've been here. We don't always agree on Monday through Saturday. Right? Monday through Saturday, we don't always agree, but we sure do agree at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, don't we? I think that's amazing. We praise God for that kind of unity here. And we desire similarly to be unified with the other Christ following churches across the valley. Worship binds us together in the love and in the joy of Jesus, just like it bound Paul to the church at Philippi. That's why we're cheering on our new missions committee here at All Saints. That's why we want to plant new churches. Because we want to be connected with Christians wherever they are found on this globe. And we want our brotherhood and our sisterhood to grow. That's, I think, what we see embodied in Paul's relationship with the Philippian church. Now I get what comes next. I get what comes next. There's a big question that arises naturally out of everything I just said. Wait a minute, Douglas, you say. I've been around some churches, you see. And the thing is, they just don't seem to be as joyful or as loving or as unified as you make them sound to be. The truth is, you're not describing my experience at all. So what's up with that? I get it. The question is, which should I believe? What the Apostle Paul says here or my eyes and my ears because I've seen stuff and I've heard stuff and it's not been very pretty which one should I believe well honestly it's a really tough question I think it's there is quite often a very unsettling gap between what we know the church is supposed to be and what it actually is if we told each other all of our stories about how the church has let us down over the years we could be here a long time and I bet we would all have stories to contribute, and that should break our hearts, and it breaks mine. I have shed tears over church stories that I've heard, and sometimes I've even been the culprit. Even when I'm not, I mourn that so many people have been hurt so badly so often. I mean, that just seems to be something we hear about all the time. Like a husband and a wife, Or like a child with its special toy, the glory of Jesus and the love of his people were not meant to be separated. And they cannot be separated without pain and without tears. So back to the question. Which is the reality? Is the church a place of joy, love, blessing, and unity as we see it described in the scriptures? Or is it a place of conflict and disappointment That we also see described in the scriptures, by the way. But we've also maybe seen and heard, experienced in our own lives. Which one is it? Which one is the church, Brian? Well, the answer is both, of course. It's always both. The church is a place of joy and disappointment because it's in a strange middle place. The church has already begun to do the things that it's supposed to do things like proclaim the gospel worship God serve people expand the kingdom the church is already what it's supposed to be and yet it's at the same time not what it's supposed to be it's in a strange shadowy middle place and that's why one minute it's the best thing that ever happened to us and then the next it's the biggest disappointment imaginable it makes sense the church is in a middle place actually it makes sense that it is because we are too we who are followers of jesus we've been renewed we've been spiritually resurrected we've been given a job to do and we've been given the power and the authority to go and do it and yet we fail how often how often do you fail to do what you're supposed to do every day we all fail every day that's the reality We really want to live in relationship with friends who will, this is the phrase from verse 14, friends who will share our trouble, as the Apostle Paul describes his relationship with the Philippians. We hear that story and we say, I want that. I want that friendship. I want people who will meet my needs, like the Philippians met the Apostle Paul's needs, and vice versa. We're searching for the kind of relationship that Paul had with the Philippian church that we see described throughout this book, We want it, and we chase it, and we desire it. And then what do we do? And then we blow up our search by insisting that our relationships have to be on our own time and on our own terms. And what ruins friendships? What ruins relationships? What ruins churches is sin, selfishness, the idolizing of ourselves, It undermines and it destroys the love and the joy and the unity that the Apostle wrote about in Philippians. And behind every single one of your church horror stories is selfishness and sin. We're already what we're supposed to be, and yet we're not what we're supposed to be. That's just us as people. And we are the church. So it makes sense that the church would be pretty regularly disappointing. I mean, if I fail daily... And you fail daily, and we are the church, the church is going to fail daily. Right? it already is, and it's, it's not quite yet. But thanks be to God, here's the story. Here's the arc of the whole thing, okay? This is true of you, and it's true of us. Thanks be to God, He's not done with us. He's in the process of renewing me and renewing you. He's remodeling us into what we're supposed to be. He's reshaping us until we look like Jesus. And he's actually using us to accomplish that in each other. He's even using our own failures, the times when we let each other down, to accomplish that in each other. That's his promise to us. His promise is that he's not finished yet. He who began the good work in you will complete it. Paul says that in Philippians chapter 1. That's his promise. And one day, we will see with our eyes the fulfillment of that promise. So as we church together, as we worship together despite our differences, as we partner together in ministry, sacrificing for each other as we're able, as we enjoy and live out the gospel together, then we will find that joy that we've been looking for the same joy that the apostle Paul found in Christ through his people and it's our prayer that that would be true of all saints what a great way to end our look at the book of Philippians and what a great call for us read this book through one more time maybe this afternoon and and let it sink in one more time before we start something new praise be to God and thanks to him for his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Spirit of Christ, we, we, can, we can try our best to do the things that we're supposed to do. Uh, we confess to you already that, that we're awfully prone to failing and that we, we just know, Lord, that if this, if this whole thing hinges on us, if it depends on us, that it's, it's not going to be very successful. And so we thank you that you're the one that's at work in us. We thank you that you're the one that's at work in your church. That the power behind our uh, sanctification, our becoming what we're supposed to be, and the power behind the church doing what it's supposed to do. uh, Thank you that you're the power behind that and not us. And so we, we ask that you would demonstrate your power in our lives. For each individual person here, I pray that today you would take them one step closer toward being the image of Christ that they are supposed to be, that you created them to be. And I pray for us as a church, all saints, in the churches across the Treasure Valley and and around the world, that that you would move all of the churches one step closer toward being the kinds of communities of love and joy and safety and peace. We confess that that's just far too often not the case, but we know it's your power that will enable us to become what we're supposed to be